Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Conversation on New Jersey Education. My name is Ray Pinney. I'll be your host on NJSBA's podcast program. Uh, today, uh, we will not be having our uh, phone lines open, but uh, if you listen to this, you can. if you have any questions, you can contact, contact myself or one of our guests. Uh, our main guest will be Kristen Brown. Um, but before we start, and today we'll be talking about student, the student teaching process, the changes in the student teaching process in New Jersey. Uh, and with me uh, is Kristen Brown. Welcome, Kristen. You're with the, the Department of Education. Just give us a little background on yourself. Thanks, Ray. As Ray mentioned, I have, I'm with the Department of Ed, and in my role at the department, I am responsible for four offices that are related to talent, educator talent, so our certification office, professional development, evaluation, and finally the topic we're here to talk about today, educator preparation. Okay, and uh, I I didn't get the name of the uh, – I see the phone number, eight. Uh, the last four digits are uh, 8401. Is this uh, Dr. George or Dr. Bragan? Hello? Okay, I think we don't have him right now. I'm not sure. I see his line. Can Can you hear Dr. me, Doctor Bragan? Yes. You, yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can. You can't listen Hi. on the computer and on your phone at the same time. So okay, I don't think I'm on the computer. Okay. But okay. All right. Uh, who is? Uh, I didn't. I don't have your name up on my screen. Which, I am uh, Bernie Bragan, the superintendent has the Township Public Schools. Okay, Bernie. Thanks a lot. Um, okay, we'll be uh, and I'll be uh, talking with both of you about the the new changes in the student teaching process. Uh, and I'll, I'll be starting first with you, Kristen. I mean, the re- in recent years, uh, the state of New Jersey has looked at changing our uh, assessment of uh, students, looking at re-looking at our standards, changing the way we evaluate teachers, uh, but the getting teachers off on the right foot, I guess. Uh, that first couple of years is probably the hardest years of teaching. So now we're looking at the student teaching uh, uh, process that we use in New Jersey. Can you explain what the basic change is, but also actually more importantly, why you're looking to make these changes? Sure. So let's take that question of why first. So I think there were two things that at the department we recognized. One was that we're hiring a ton of new teachers every year. Uh, Over the past few years, it's been somewhere in the realm of 6,500 annually. And so when we step back, we we realize, wow, um, this group of of teachers, this segment of our workforce is impacting hundreds of thousands of students. And then we also, um, with that in mind, looked at what was going on in our own backyard with various preparation programs and districts and what they were doing to prepare teachers. We looked at what programs and districts were doing nationally, excuse me, and what the research says. And, And much of it all pointed to the same thing, which said the more that your preparation can be clinically based, where we can have aspiring teachers deeply embedded in K-12 school settings, where they have the opportunity to not only learn theory, but learn theory and then apply it, the better. 
So that's, that's the why. And then to answer your, your question about what we're doing, I know we'll get into more depth about how we're moving to year-long student teaching, how we have a new capstone assessment, a performance assessment called EdTPA for the end of that student teaching, and how we're also expanding some of the preparation we're providing through the alternate route. Okay. Uh, Bernie, uh, you're a superintendent. I, I guess you've been in education a long time. First, uh, What's your experience of first-year teachers or second-year teachers? It is a difficult time period, uh, and I know there's a high turnover rate for teachers in the first few years. I would agree. Um, like any um, professional field, the first year that you're actually in practice is extremely different than what you've been doing in the classroom. And the teaching, typically the student teaching experience is, is not long enough to provide um, all the experience from the things that you're going to be dealing with, from teacher conferences to working with colleagues to um, administrative professional development opportunities. And um, as Kristen was saying, the more and more time you could spend in a practical environment, the better off you'll be. We, we were fortunate enough to work with Monmouth University over the last, geez, seven or eight years, and Dr. George had set this up prior to going to Middletown, that we're a, one of our elementary schools is what's called a professional development school which incorporates almost a, um, a medical model in the practice of being like a teaching hospital, a teaching school, and working closely with the university. So we have the interns coming to us as early as their sophomore year and staying in the same environment, same classrooms, and being in there as practicum students as well as working with students in after-school tutoring programs as part of the overall um, professional development school model. So the longer they get time, working actually in the field with professional teachers and with students, I think, is, is great. Uh, and I'll get more into that. Uh, but, Kristen, I guess we should uh, – some of the change the, – the, the first change that stands out for most people is the length of time uh, that uh, someone is uh, a student teacher. Uh, could you just explain the basic change of what that sure. is and what it is sure. now? So if you think about what it previously was, um, I tend to refer to it as the, the parachute model, where student teaching was one semester long, a college semester, and a aspiring teacher would parachute in and typically would have observed for a few days and then take control of the classroom. And what we're doing is we're moving to a full year so that that aspiring teacher is going to be spending time in a classroom to see everything from beginning to end of, of a K-12 through school year. And the idea is that they are serving as supplemental staff in that classroom, they're working to co-teach, and that they're becoming deeply familiar with the school they're in, the students that they're working with, families, district policies, and they're gradually taking on more and more responsibilities throughout the year. So uh, let me uh, just, if I hear, heard you correctly, it's not, even though it's not just a longer period of them just t- coming in and taking over the class for a sh- short period, it's really a slowly immersion of them into the the school setting, uh, and they're almost a co-teacher at certain points. That's absolutely right. And and we're trying as a state not to be prescriptive about what that looks like because we've seen it work in a lot of different ways across our district, but you're absolutely right that this would be a second set of hands in a classroom providing supports to students and taking on more responsibilities as they become more adept throughout the school year. Okay, uh, Dr. Bragan, you were talking about – uh, you already have been a little bit ahead of the curve in this. Uh, what's the event? I mean, before this, I guess, for most teachers coming in, the only time they really were in the cla- uh, classroom as a teacher was their student teaching. That's the only experience they had that short 
time, and so you're trying to lengthen that time? Well, typically they would also do some kind of practical experience, either a sophomore field and sometimes in their junior year, but it was never consistent in the same classroom over a year-long period. We were fortunate to work with Monmouth University, and they piloted the year-long student, we call them student intern program, um, last year. So the students in the fall semester would come in two, three days a week. They couldn't come like their student teaching because they still had a, uh, you know, a teaching, uh, a class schedule at Monmouth University, so they would work around right. their, you know, their, their classes. But the fact they were able to stay in the same classroom with the same teacher and the same students over the course of the year was so beneficial. They got to see the dynamic of the year unfold and how that, um, the responsibilities of an educator um, changed, you know, over the course of the year, but also, more importantly, to see how the students developed um, whether you're working with first first grade students, second grade, third grade, fourth grade students, and uh, every one of them that we've interviewed, you know, it was an internship, it was it was a um, a pilot program, so Mammoth gained a lot of information from the student interns. They loved it, and this year we had even uh, more students volunteer, you know, in anticipation that it's going to be a requirement, you know, in the forthcoming years. Oh, that, that's a that's positive. Now, uh, is it a little different experience though? Is it because uh, uh, Kristen was talking about how there's kind of a more of a slowly a slower immersion into it. Uh, do you think that's a better way to go about it instead of just kind of throwing them, putting put them on the two wheel bike and hoping they make it? Absolutely, they have a more more opportunities to watch a master teacher perform their craft, and it is a craft. You know, it, there's an art and a science to it and to being effective. And the more time the students spend in a supportive role, whether that's helping students or kind of guiding the students with the lessons or taking small pieces of it before they actually take over a classroom themselves and watch a master teacher in action, absolutely, you know, the better they are at it. You know, we, again, we ascribe to the medical model. You know, the more appendectomies you participate in and watch, the better off you'll be able to do one when it's your turn. And uh, I think this state's going in the right direction with providing more of that supportive, you know, guided practice before you're expected to do it on your own. Uh one and uh Kristen, you talked about this a little bit uh and some of the whenever you mention a video or a component to someone being videotaped, they get a little bit nervous, but one of the components of this uh evaluation uh for the student teacher is a video component um How does that work? yeah, so stepping back a little bit, you know as we worked to put more emphasis on this student teaching experience, and like Dr. Bragan said, really make it clinical in nature, similar to the medical model, we figured that, you know, our licensure needs to reflect that as well. And when you look at what it takes to become licensed in New Jersey, we often didn't look at something that um, is pretty important. Can you plan a lesson? Can you deliver it? Can you assess kids? And so we've put in place a performance assessment called EdTPA, which is designed to be a capstone or a culminating project at the end of your student-teacher experience where you're gathering up a variety of artifacts, real artifacts, not made-up ones that you're producing for certification, but real artifacts from your actual student teaching um, to demonstrate that you've got strong pedagogical skills. And like you alluded to, Ray, one piece of that is videoing yourself delivering a lesson to students. And this whole process, for those who are familiar, is very similar to the national board certification process that master teachers can go through. And I think the important thing here is we're not trying to standardize what great teaching looks like and specify that, you know, a lesson plan must look exactly like this. 
but rather we're looking to see what pedagogical choices aspiring teachers make and why, and that they're really strong, as mentioned, at planning lessons, delivering them, assessing, and reflecting. Uh, a couple questions that I've, I've heard on the, the video component, uh, and then we'll get into the student-teacher evaluation a little bit more. Uh, one, uh, I've, I'm guessing or assuming that you have to get the require, uh, permission from the students that are in the class, or at least make sure the ones who don't have, haven't given permission are not in the, uh, in the video. And the second part would be, how long is this video? Is there... I'm, is there a prescription or you kind of leave it up to the university? Great question. So in terms of permission, the answer is absolutely. Anytime we're going to collect information that pertains to students in any way, we need to obtain parental permission. And so that is part of this entire process. And, and in addition to that, um, there are also pretty strict confidentiality and student privacy guidelines that govern what we collect, who has access to it, how long it's kept, who owns it, when it's destroyed, and all of that information has been distributed in a broadcast to superintendents across the state and will make available, continually make available. Um, if in the event that a parent, after reviewing all that information, is uncomfortable with giving permission for their student to participate um, in the, as in be on the video where that the teacher is capturing and using to submit, then they are able to opt out of that. And when they do so, um, the aspiring teacher can still complete the assessment, even if they make, an individual parent makes that choice. Um, there are ways that they can either move the camera so it doesn't include that student. There are ways that they can blur out faces of, of students. But I don't want to get away from the fact that bottom line, we're hoping a lot of parents do believe in this because we think that we believe in the assessment because we believe it produces stronger teachers for our kids and that it's meaningful and worthwhile to, to have as many students as possible participating. And then to answer your second question about length, we're looking for an unedited portion of video, um, and there are guidelines as to how long. I don't know the exact minutes off the top of my head. I would have to look that up, but I believe it's about 15 minutes. And so, again, we're looking at a 15-minute snapshot of teachers delivering a lesson. And is this uh, to be a almost reflective piece for the student teacher uh, that, to look at it with their cooperating teacher or their university staff member to just see themselves? And is that the idea behind it? Uh, oh, absolutely. In the same way that you know, someone on a sports team, a professional athlete, would watch videos of themselves playing. That's the same premise here. And, and again, you heard me say it goes a lot further than just the video component. It's about taking a look at the lessons you've created and reflecting on them. What worked? What didn't? It's about looking at the video of yourself delivering the lesson and, again, reflecting. It's about creating an assessment and then looking at how students performed, what worked, what, what didn't. And, again, it's not as much about getting everything right, but also reflecting on your practice as you went. Uh, Dr. Bragan, did you, uh, uh, any of your uh, uh, students, uh, not your students, uh, your uh, uh, interns, you call them interns, uh, do any videotaping mm -hmm. of their lessons? Uh, how, how do you they think do. it went? They do. You know, it, I think it went well. And, you know, it's funny. I'm in the game 28 years. I started teaching in 1988, and I used to use a VHS, if you use that <laughs> Most people probably don't even remember what that looks like. Recorder, though, to tape some of my, my lessons kids don't at the know what time. That is. You know, I'd sit. 
I'd set it up in the back of the room and just tape myself. And, you know, after a while, the students and myself forgot about it. And it was great. I taught in some special education settings with students with behavioral disabilities. And it was a great model for me to reflect on my practice, but also for the students to see themselves and maybe refine some of their behaviors and things to be more appropriate. And it worked out really well. With our student interns, we do use it, and uh, we use iPads. And uh, as part of our novice teacher training model, which is a four-year uh, process for Hazlitt for, as the teachers come through our system, year four is a reflective journaling with video journaling where we use the iPads and we actually use a device called the swivel, swivel that's relatively cheap and monitors where the teacher is in the room to kind of record the teacher's, um, you know, all their words and their movements and their interactions with students. And the, the idea, as um, Kristen was saying, is is for the the student teacher to become more reflective on their practice and to get better. And the advent of the mobile devices and things make it so easy to video record things. And in regards to the students, that hasn't been an issue with us. Most of our parents sign off on the consent waivers to put information on the website. And uh, this information is really just used for reflective practice. I, I don't see that being an impediment at all um, in the school districts. So, uh, if I heard you correctly, uh, your interns and student teachers use this on a regular basis, not just, as Chris was talking, like a 15-minute video that they look at once. This is kind of a regular feedback that they they use in their classroom. I wouldn't – maybe I, I shouldn't have said regular, but regular, it's something we but, do. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not an anomaly to video record a lesson or your delivery of a lesson. And for our students, geez, they're in a different world than I grew up in. They record everything. So it's not, it's not even viewed as obtrusive or anything. And what a great vehicle to get feedback, instantaneous. You know, it's, we used to have, to have Polaroid cameras back when I was a kid to get that <laughs> feedback. You know, now they get the entire video right away. And, uh, you know, it's, I used to coach sports, and my daughters participated in pole vault in track. And we videotape every jump, come back and watch it right away. Why wouldn't we do the same type of – have that same type of expectation for our teachers and student teachers to reflect on a lesson? It's the same thing. You know, uh, yeah. deliberative practice is how we get better, whether that's in sports or, or in teaching. Yeah, so going back for many years, I was a, played football, and I, some days I knew there was going to be a mistake that came on the film, and the film never lied, as we said. Uh, Kristen, you wanted to add something? <laughs> yeah, there was something that Dr. Bregan said that just that stuck with me when he was talking about how, you know, it's reflective practice is something they do, and it's not just for this one assessment, the EdTPA, because there are 15 other states that have adopted the same assessment, so we're one of many. And one of the things they've said in states where it's worked really well as they've rolled it out is that it's not necessarily just about the assessment and conforming to the assessment. It's about what you're doing day in and day out. And so when Dr. Bregan was talking, I do think it's about constantly reflecting on your practice and, you know, as an example, you might take multiple segments of videotape and constantly be talking about them. And the assessment really just acts as a showcase of your very best work at the end. I just want to uh, clarify one thing, too, because I was at a meeting and people were a little nervous about uh, the videotaping and being used in the evaluation portion. And you said before, it's just one component of the entire evaluation of the student teacher as part of the EdTPA. That's right? correct. That's correct. So they're submitting samples of lesson plans in addition to the video, samples of assessments they've given, and most importantly, the bulk of what they're submitting is their commentary on these artifacts. 
And I think over and above this assessment, the other thing that's important is we're not looking just to this assessment to decide whether or not someone is, will be a strong teacher. We're also looking for, as always, the recommendation from the program that's preparing them, um, mm -hmm. as well as that they know their content, um, et cetera. So this is just one piece to get a fuller picture of that aspiring teacher. And uh, I'm going to mention the, the, I guess the P word Pearson, uh, uh, but I, I know Pearson is part of this uh, evaluation process. You probably should be uh, let us know what their role is in this. Yeah, absolutely. So this uh, this performance assessment at TPA actually stemmed out of some work that was happening at the, the Ed School at Stanford, and so Stanford worked to develop the assessment and still owns all owns the right to the assessment and, and the design of it. And as they were developing it as well, it was really important to them that it, it came from the field. So it was field tested and, and designed with close to, I think, 20,000 different educators and, and teacher educators. And when they decided to scale up, they took on two partners. So one was the American Association of Colleges of Teacher Education, who really has worked to promote and support the spread across programs throughout the country. Um, and I think it's used by close to 500 programs throughout the country, um, some of which have state policies requiring its use and others who are doing it of their own accord. And then, as you mentioned, they also partnered with Pearson to help with the operational side of things. And as the, the group from Stanford says, when they moved from running a rinky-dink show in a side theater to running a, a Broadway musical, they needed operational support to make sure that things like um, timely release of, of score reports was happening. Because, again, at the end of the day, this connects to certification. And as aspiring teachers are working to get certified, there are certain things that we need to make sure are happening, so all of that goes smoothly and without a hitch. All right. Uh, we were talking earlier. I mean, we've been focusing on the student teacher. Um, there's also the cooperating or master teacher. Uh, I'm not sure. I know uh, the new terminology is cooperating teacher. Kristen, first, what are the requirements to be a, mass, uh, a cooperating teacher? Yeah, so you have to have a, a certain number of years of experience. You have to be effective or highly effective. And I think um, and we're working to try and make sure that they have a certification in the, the content area that the aspiring teacher is, is working to gain certification in. And I think more broadly what's important here is we know that if you simply increase the length of student teaching um, without paying attention to the quality of, of the master teacher or the cooperating teacher in that classroom, this, this won't work. And so um, we've really tried to continue to think about how we can get some of our strongest teachers take, to um, help develop our next generation of teachers. Uh, Dr. Bregan, I just want to follow up on her on the, the strongest teachers. And I'm sure uh, – as a superintendent of your district, that's one of your – if you have a student teacher, you try to get the strongest teacher in there. Um, is there uh, – I've heard some from some teachers that with their teacher evaluation tied to student performance, this might be something that they may not want to volunteer for. Is that something that you've seen in your district? We haven't really seen it. I mean, I've heard about it, and now that the SGO and SGP, SGP scores are tied to the teacher evaluation, albeit – um, watered down to a pretty small percentage what it was initially supposed to be, um, the impact is overall minimal. And at the end of the day, the teacher is not ceding complete control to the student teacher. 
especially with the year-long practice, the teacher and the intern have more time together before that intern actually takes over the entire classroom. So it'll actually provide – I'm sorry, I'm in a building, you're hearing the PA announcement. Yeah. <laughs> but that'll also, also – that, that, that's sometimes frustrating, sometimes good. But, but it also provides more guidance before the teacher, the student intern, does take over the class solely – and yet, even though they're solely taking over their instructional responsibilities, the, the mentor, master, teacher is still there to guide the process. You know, it's not like they're going down to the lunchroom until, uh, for three months every day. Um, so I haven't seen it as an issue. We've been really fortunate. Our, our staff has been extremely professional. And recognizing the value of student teaching, you're passing along your craft to an aspiring teacher. What, what more could you do? And I've found, as, from a personal perspective as well as an administrator, when people do that, it brings out the best in the cooperating teacher as well. Um, so it, it probably makes them reflective on teaching a little bit too because they're seeing someone approach teaching for the first time. So you kind of have to be – when you teach someone teaching, you have to be reflective uh, a little bit about the, uh, about the the craft, as you said before. Absolutely. and. Uh, you know, what, what's more um, flattering than somebody coming in and wanting to be an apprentice with you? You're going to show them the best practices that you can. You're not going to cut corners. You're going to, you're going to do your best to, to show them, you know, all that's great in the field and the things that you need to do to be successful. So we, we find it to be extremely beneficial. We don't just have a few student teachers. We, we have dozens throughout the district. Um, and as I said, we're fortunate. We have a professional development school model at Middle Road School with Monmouth University. And um, we get the best of the best uh, as a result of that. So we're extremely proud of that. And the ultimate goal for the teacher is almost the same as ours. When they're done, they want to secure employment. And we get the opportunity to sometimes hire people that we've trained for a year now or, or more in some cases that also did their junior practicum with us as well. Oh, and, and they would be then familiar with that your school district's practices, uh, because that's part of the trans, uh, the adjustment is each school district has a little bit, it's a little bit different. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you, you mentioned the P word for Pearson, and, you know, sometimes the public runs with that, and they, they think that's, you know, a, a terrible thing that Pearson is a large assessment and education company. You know, they don't feel the same way about Johnson & Johnson or Exxon, um, who have provided us cheaper gas and cheaper pharmaceuticals through consolidation in a better product. Um, some of that um, absurdity that the public has against Pearson, really, um, as educators and professionals in the field, we need to counteract that because it's just inaccurate. Pearson does a great job with assessments. They have a, a large number of assessments, not just the park and other state assessments as far as um, child study team assessments, psychological assessments, and uh, to malign them like that, as the public has done, it, it, it's really silly, and it comes from an uneducated perspective. Uh, one other thing with the the cooperating teacher and master teacher, usually they're they're a well-respected teacher. Everyone uh, in the building and the parents and the students know that they're a respected teacher. Uh, what about the parents who say, oh, I, I wanted Mrs. Jones, and now I find out she has a student teacher? Uh, do you get pushback? I've heard that sometimes – uh, the parents aren't as thrilled about having a student teacher. Uh, is that something that you've had to deal with on, at all? It happens on occasion. And, uh, you know, when we get that pushback, we just say, listen, you know, one, you don't have an option. This isn't, um, you know, the Randy Country Day School where you get to pick your <laughs> teachers. You're in a public school. Right. You get who's assigned to you. And we're going we're gonna to make sure that who's ever in that classroom is going to do a great job. So on occasion, it's very rare. 
um, the, you, what I get more often than that is, you know, a uh, teacher goes to back to school night and sees that the teacher's pregnant and is going to be out for six, seven months. And that probably upsets parents more than a student teacher. Um, and again, we work in education. That's what happens. You know, sometimes a teacher, due to medical reasons or other things, can't be there for the entire duration. And our responsibility is to make sure we have a qualified substitute into place. But in regards to the student, student teaching, I haven't really experienced much personal pushback with that because what we, we're doing is we're modeling this. Um, right now we're doing the pilot as we move forward is the teachers are working closely with the student teacher. It's not like we're a, a track meet where you're handing off the, the baton to the next runner and leaving them on their own. So for the majority of the time, they're getting instruction from two um, professionals in the room. And for most, most parents, see it as an extreme benefit. Uh, Kristen, you have any comment on the parents' input uh, or concerns? No, just to echo the same that you've heard before. I think it's all about how you use the student teacher, and it's a lot scarier a proposition if you're handing over the reins to someone who doesn't have a ton of experience. But we have seen really promising practices in some of our districts across the state. So just as an example, we've seen instances where, um, you know, there would be multiple groups running in a classroom at once, and the, the novice teacher or the aspiring teacher, the student teacher, is able to work with the students who are getting it, while uh, the experienced teacher can provide interventions to some students who need support the most. So I think it really comes down to how that student teacher is utilized. Okay. Uh, I'm with the School Board Association, and everyone's always concerned about any costs. Um, are there any additional costs, like who pays for the videotape uh, and, uh, and uh, of that sort, uh, Kristen? Yeah. So Ray, Ray, you said video. Ray, you're dating yourself. There is no videotape. Storage at Google Online is free. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry. I, I had from, a comment on that. From his eagerness, yeah, I'll be really – I'll be anxious to hear from Dr. Bragan on this. But um, there are costs. We're trying to minimize them, and we're trying to give individual districts and individual prep programs a lot of discretion to how they approach this so that they can take advantage of what's already out there. So oftentimes one of the biggest costs we hear about um, relates to technology needs, especially around how do I videotape something. Um, and we've seen okay. different so hold, hold programs. Hold Kristen said videotape, too, and you didn't jump in. So, I'm sorry? Uh, <laughs> you said videotape. You're, and you're right. Bernie did not jump in. <laughs> Uh, keep going, Kristen. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we often hear about the costs related to technology, um, but we've seen different places approach that in a variety of different ways. Um, at the end of the day, the preparation program that's preparing that aspiring teacher bears ultimate responsibility for making sure that anything that, that their aspiring teacher has, they need to complete this. But oftentimes colleges or universities may have access to technology already. There might be swivels in the existing district, uh, like you heard Dr. Bragan say. Um, and so at the end of the day, there's, we're trying to minimize costs. But I really am I'm curious to hear from Dr. Bragan as to how they've approached it and if there have been additional costs that they've had to bear. Yeah, I would add one thing to Kristen's uh throwing the question to you is it may not be a cost, but something that if the district's hosting the student teacher that they might want to be aware of to make the process uh, easier for both the cooperating teacher and the student teacher? It's a great question. I mean, uh, it has it, and I can't speak for any, anywhere else. You know, I've been here going on 10 years now, and uh, there's been a consistent investment by the Board of Ed in technology. And every year 
we dedicate a good portion of our um, um, discretionary budget towards technology, from bandwidth to actual machines and uh, devices in the classroom. So from our perspective, we, we do this already. As I said, it's part of our um, novice teacher training program. Is part of the self-reflective practice is video journaling. So our kids are mostly using um, devices already. In, in the primary grades, we're using iPads that have video capabilities, and we've incorporated a few swivels in each of the buildings. They're, they're like, it's a $200 device. Um, mm -hmm. The cost is really, as technology's gotten better and better, and I was joking about the videotape, right, because I was a football guy, and we used to actually have the Super 8 tapes we had to break down back in the day. <laughs> but, um, Me too. There, there are no tapes about. any. There's, yeah, there's no tape, and they would actually break. You know, they'd have to tape them together, and you would right. actually splice it and cut and paste. Like kids don't know what that where that came from, but um, there there is really no there's I can't see there being a significant additional cost to schools because you already have an investment in your infrastructure as far as wireless capabilities. You already have some type of investment in devices, even if it's the devices the students are using via their own phones. Um, the recording capabilities on the on the iPhone 7 supersede most machines that we have um, that record digitally anyway. So it, the, the technology has really, um, the advancements in technology have made the cost to videotape a lesson, to video, I shouldn't say tape, I said it myself, to to record a lesson virtually, it's virtually non-existent, the cost. Um, I, I don't see know, any additional costs associated with this program. Okay. Uh, any recommendation? I mean, it seems like you've incorporated the, the video. Uh, we have to, I guess, the filming of the recording of the of the student teacher as part of your regular process, anyway. So it wasn't something that was a brand new thing. And uh, uh, and now, I guess, with smartphones, if you really want to, you can videotape anything. Uh, I think our bigger problem is too many things are being videotaped. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> One other thing, uh, we've been talking about the traditional route of, of teachers. You know, you go into a four-year school, doing your practicum, doing some type of student teaching. Uh, we districts also hire alternate routes. Chris, and I know there have been some changes suggested uh, made in that area too. Could you explain those? Sure. And for those who aren't familiar, the alternate route is our way to basically. Um, receive the bulk of your preparation while you're in service so that you can more directly enter into the profession. And so when we were first thinking about changes, we looked again at the national landscape, and what we realized was just New Jersey in many ways was way less stringent about the preparation that was provided through this route than a lot of other states. That didn't mean that we didn't have some prep programs that were going way above and beyond what we required, but we as a state were pretty lenient. Um, and by that I mean we required 24 hours of pre-service, all of which could be online and include absolutely zero interaction with students. And then we provided 10 months of in-service support, which was about 200 hours, to those teachers who were brand new to, to the profession and had received no formal training prior to this. And so our goal was to improve the support that those teachers received without causing significantly fewer teachers to enter the alternate route because we have heard from many districts that this provides uh, a, a strong way for them to get candidates, especially in niche areas like hard-to-fill areas like math and science where you might be able to access career changers. And so in a nutshell, we've moved away from 24 hours of pre-service and lengthened that to 50 hours, but I think the more significant part of that is a portion of those hours 
have to be focused on planning and delivering instruction to school-aged kids. And we're trying to be really flexible about where that happens. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a school, again, because we know that um, sometimes your teachers are hired late in the game. Sometimes you don't have access to summer school when they're hired. Um, but the important part is that they're getting some sort of pre-service that exposes them to kids. And then we're moving from 10 months of in-service support to two years. And I think at the same time, though, it's important to caveat that we're expanding the definition of what support is because we don't want them simply sitting in a, a library down the street from their school hearing more lectures. Um, that can be part of it, but we're also saying things like in-classroom coaching can be count towards the definition of what counts over those two years as, as the support that they're receiving. So uh, basically trying to get them more real-world experience uh, because, uh, as Dr. Bragan said before, teaching is not just about the content. Even though I know we need people in math and science, it's a craft. So you're trying to get them a little bit more experience with students in different ways without hampering getting qualified uh, uh, candidates in certain fields. That's exactly right. The name of the game for us is clinical preparation, and so we're increasing the time they're spending with kids before they're officially the teacher of record, and we're trying to expand the definition of the support they get over the following two years. So it's not just theory that they're learning, but also practical applications. Again, all about um, their pedagogical choices. So not just the content that they already come to the profession with, but also really supporting them on how to be a great teacher. And Dr. Bregan, I don't know if you've uh, worked, I know alternate routes varies from district to district, uh, but I probably if you have, is the, the biggest difficult obstacle for uh, a alternate route teacher is the lack of classroom experience? Thank you. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's definitely the issue. And, uh, you know, they put, the alternate route teachers are a valuable resource for us in some of the areas um, uh, that we have, lack, we have difficulty getting getting staff for in the science and mathematics realms. And we've been so successful. We've had a few people that were, you know, retired PhD guys that worked at Bell Labs or somewhere similar in the field and wanted to teach. Now, their first year or two was, was stressful for them and for us because they didn't have the teaching pedagogy and instructional models. They had the content knowledge. Um, and some d were not successful because the alternate route training program wasn't as defined as it is now, giving you the practical experience, as um, Kristen was saying, about planning and preparing lessons, you know, interacting with students. And, you know, sometimes we forget that, you know, we're not teaching physics. We're, we're teaching high school kids and adolescents and everything that they bring to the table. And that's somewhat, is somewhat different for people that have been in the field working with adults for the last 40 years. It's a different environment. So it definitely requires an expertise and a nuance in order to do that. And the more practical experience they get while they're doing it and prior to doing it, I think the better off we'll be. But they, they're a valuable resource. We've had some of our best teachers were alternate route candidates um, with the proper support and training, and, and they service the need, let's be honest. There are, if you have a mm -hmm. master's in mathematics, you're probably not going to be teaching high school math. You're going to be working somewhere in the field or, in, or a Ph.D. in science. So if we get a chance to get those people from their uh, assigned fields and to, to share that expertise from an instructional perspective in a high school, that's great. And, you know, I support that as much as we can. Uh, Kristen, uh, we've been talking, uh, as I talk to people in the, in the field, 
this is kind of this whole the changes in the student teaching kind of has snuck up on some people. Uh, it's not new. Uh, at least the changes will be new. But the the ball started rolling uh, a while ago. And so, what's the time frame for the changes? When did it start, and where are we going? Yeah. So some of the changes we talked about today were adopted as long ago as. Um, the summer of 2014, but for the large majority of them, we began the discussion early in 2015. Many of the changes were adopted about a year ago at, at the end of 2015, and I think one of the, the things that has been very important to us throughout all of this is giving time to make the changes because we all know that doing something well is more important than doing something fast. And so in terms of everything we've talked about today, even though these were adopted um, almost a year ago, none of it goes into effect this current school year and much of it not even next year. So to kind of break it apart piece by piece, the year-long student teaching doesn't go into effect until the 18-19 school year. And for us, that's really to make sure that we're not impacting college students who are already in the pipeline and changing the goalposts in the middle of the game and to give our prep programs time to pilot and ramp up. And then the alt-root changes are going into effect next year, 17-18. We were able to move a little bit more quickly on those simply because we don't have any candidates in the pipeline. Um, when you enter your alt-root program, that's, that's the beginning of your training. And then mm -hmm. the last piece is that, that capstone performance assessment, the EdTPA, which it's important to note, and I think I forgot to say this before, that both our traditional root candidates and our alternate root candidates would be asked to pass. And so, again, we're trying to do a multi-year ramp up with this year being a purely optional pilot. Then next year, candidates, all they have to do is complete the assessment in order to get certified. Then the year following, the 1819 school year, we start putting lower stakes in. So it does become consequential. And in order to get your license, you have to get hit a certain cut score. But the cut score we, we chose came from a national standard setting, and we opted to go one standard of error below what they recommended to make sure that, again, we weren't negatively impacting candidates. And then finally, it isn't until 1920 uh, school year that we would step back, work with New Jersey stakeholders, including New Jersey teachers and New Jersey teacher educators, to set our more permanent cut score. Okay. Um Dr. Bregan, uh, we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, you've been through this before. Would you recommend to a district they become a pilot district if they can? Because a lot of districts like to have student teachers. Uh, I think they all find it beneficial to both their staff, their students, and the profession in and of itself. But if they're not, are there any recommendations you would have for them as they start moving in this direction uh, to make it a smoother transition for both their staff, students, and the student teacher? I would say just work with the universities that are, you know, in your community. We've been fortunate to have a partnership with Monmouth University. We've worked with Kane. We've worked with Seton Hall, um, Georgian Court. And uh, those partnerships yield great benefits to the district. You know, a lot of our student interns wind up participating in our after-school tutoring programs, providing services for our students for free to better their craft, you know, under the guidance of a teacher. And I also want to compliment Kristen and the state for what they're doing here. They're, they're making such huge inroads and initiatives, starting with the evaluation model and now the pre-service training for teachers that, that are really going to impact New Jersey. And that takes courage to make those changes because, you know, nobody, no matter who we are, especially educational, you know, uh, the large ship turns slowly, um, want to change. And it's going to be better for our children, better for the community. And we're so excited at, at uh, the new commissioner, too, 
coming in, you know, from an educational background of having been a teacher. Um, it's exciting. It's an exciting time for education, and uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it. I think this new model um, for, and I'm going to keep calling them interns because that's how we treat them, like a, a medical <laughs> intern. They're they're teaching interns, and soon they're going to be, you know, practitioners, and uh, it's going to be great. And and they're they're going to be better for it. Our students are going to be better served, and we need to do that because education is the cornerstone and it's the key to our continued democracy despite this current presidential election. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. But, Sorry. <laughs> that's a separate thing. And, uh, well, that brings us to the end of our time. Uh, I do want to thank both you, Kristen, uh, Kristen uh, Brown from the Department of uh, Education. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Bernie Bragan from the Hazlitt Township School District. Thanks, Bernie. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to, and I'm honored to just be a part of it. And unfortunately, my voice isn't as uh, made for radios as Kristen's is, but I'm trying. <laughs> That's right. And I'll, I'll look for you on the videotape, okay? So uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank, thank you very you, much. Uh, and, have, and have a good afternoon. Bye now. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.